Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 36 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Before we get into today's show, I just want to mention a little something. If you're listening to this on September 1st, the day that it releases, today is officially the one-year anniversary of this podcast. We had our very first episodes release on September 1st of last year, so the show is officially a year old. If you've been a listener for that whole year, thank you Thank you very much. And if you've been a listener only since this episode, thank you as well. If you would like to get us a gift here at the show to celebrate this one year anniversary, here's what you can do. It's what I usually mention at the end of the show. Head over to Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to this show. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. It is a great way for you to make sure we have a second anniversary. So that's right. Subscribe, rate, review. And that's the last you'll have to hear about that this episode. Today's guest comes highly recommended from Scott Sweeney. If you are a frequent listener of the show, perhaps you remember that episode, episode four with Scott Sweeney, the 69-year-old adventurer who has crammed about 800 years worth of life into those 69 years. Well, he personally recommended today's guest multiple times. Today's guest is Isol Gesic. She is a mountaineer and a chemical engineer that grew up in the Kurdish highlands. She has been mountaineering for 21 years and has climbed all over the world and continues to do so. She and I got together in Corriganville Park one morning and we recorded this conversation. So without further ado, Isol Gesic. My name is Aysel Gezik. I grew up in the mountains of Kurdish highlands and have always been connected to the mountains throughout my life. Growing up on a ranch high up in the mountains where I spend the happiest times of my life is naturally where home sweet home is. And even though home for me will always be the house in in the mountains where I grew up, I feel that home for me is also anywhere I travel and where tolerance and respect between people exist. For example, I am addicted to Sierras and I use every opportunity to be there during my weekends. After high school, I moved to Germany where I completed my degree in chemical engineering. My professional work has then provided me the opportunity to live in other countries, including Switzerland, England, a little bit in Ireland, and now sunny California, where I have lived since 2001. Did you like any place more than any other place? Is there some, like, do you like living in California now, or do you wish maybe you still lived in Switzerland, or do you like the idea of living in a different place every few years? I like Switzerland a lot too, the Alps. <laughs> beautiful there especially the winter winters there but sunny california is very very tempting <laughs> it became a very tempting place for me because initially when my company suggested i come here for a job uh, the client wanted somebody with my qualifications i did not want to come here because it's too far from europe and from my family they suggested my boss suggested if i didn't like it here i could come back and initially i came here for a work visa with a work visa of six months and I'm still here, so that tells you something. Right, you said 2001, right? Yes. Yeah, so then that's that's 15 years that you've lived here. It's, no. it's very nice here. The weather and there are mountains and there is ocean uh, for people who like the desert. There is There's just no rain. <laughs> not, not much <laughs> rain at all. <laughs> not like in Germany. So you said you grew up in the Kurdish mountains, is that what you said? Yes. So what was that like? Did your family work in the mountains or did you just live in the mountains and occasionally go out into the mountains? So it was in a, I, I was born in a ranch high up in the mountains. You probably know about this little girl in the Alps called Heidi <laughs> from the movies, right? 
my life really compared to hers. Our house was far away from the main village. We had to hike every day to the school. <laughs> where we had the goats and the cows and the dog, like in Heidi's life. And no, uh, running water in the house or electricity when I was a child. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So what sort of things did you do on the ranch? Did you help manage the animals? or? Was uh, I was a child. My time spent in the ranch was mainly taking the goats to the mountains uh, for the meadows <laughs> and then playing <laughs> in the, on the hills, uh, spending my time there and going to school. <laughs> and you said you moved to Germany after high school, right? There was no high school in my little village, of course. Mm-hmm. I had to move to one of the major towns in, in Kurdistan in order to finish the high school first. So that wasn't in the ranch. <laughs> so is that the first time you moved away and you didn't live on the ranch? Uh, yes, in the so, middle school and high school. So that was probably very different than how you grew up. It was different because it's still, even though it's a small town, it's a city life. But um, I spent still my holidays back in the ranch, always went back, <laughs> stayed connected. <laughs> so when did you start going into the mountains for fun instead of just for bringing goats into meadows? People often ask me how I became a mountaineer, right? Uh, the answer is simple. I grew up in the mountains, so my nickname since childhood has been mountain goat. (laughs) (laughs) So natural being in and climbing mountains has been a lifelong passion for me. Also, I always crave for an adventure and getting into the unknown excites me. In the summertime, really, when I was a child, people move higher up in the mountains with their animals because the valleys become too hot and it's better for the animals and, and productivity. So the mountain life staying in a tent starts already when I was a child. In terms of doing major climb expedition, it started in 95, year 95 in Russia. How did you come upon that? What made you decide to start trying out technical climbing and things and, and mountaineering while you were in Russia? As I mentioned, I always wanted to travel into high mountains, but I didn't have the money. When you are a student, <laughs> you don't have the income to travel internationally. As soon as I started with my professional career, did earn some money, I knew I wanted to go and climb the highest peak of Europe, which is Mount Elbrus. And since then, I have participated in various expedition climbing in Alaska, more in Russia, South America, South Asia, and Central Asia. So what was the first thing that you climbed in Russia? For acclimatization, I climbed one of the peaks in Republic of Georgia, and then really, in terms of mountaineering, I would say Mount Elbrus. So you started out in Russia, and you said... That was when you first decided to start really pursuing mountaineering. So why did you want to do that? Because you could hike through mountains all you wanted. You did your whole life, right? So what made you decide, well, I want to try things that are even harder? I think what gives me satisfaction is the challenge Mm -hmm. and the honesty that exists within some of the most beautiful places on our planet. (laughs) I uh, could see some expeditions on the television and these are big mountains and that looked fascinating to me. As a child I always believed uh, or, or knew behind every mountain there is another world and the curiosity exploring each of them is irresistible. Uh, you become part of this magical world and it is a great feeling to learn a little bit more about yourself. So in the mountains, I really find myself, (laughs) Mm -hmm. learn about myself. I am in my own element. (laughs) So where you grew up, you were surrounded by mountains, and you spent a lot of your earlier years in Europe and European countries. As I understand it, like in the United States, going into mountains, it's getting more common, but it's still kind of thought of as like a weird, crazy thing. A lot of people in America, their idea of a hobby is something more relaxing and and easier to do. As I understand it, in Europe, it's much more common for people to spend time in mountains and climbing and things like that. I guess the question I'm trying to get to is, did you find that when you did move to the United States, that there was a different culture in regards to mountaineering and the mountains? Did you find fewer people were doing it here? Or Did it feel kind of the same to you, having come from Europe? I am associated with climbing world, and I I think it's comparable, but the population in Europe more dense. (laughs) You know, the land is smaller. Right. Naturally, the percentage of hikers and the the, the trails are 
far more popular you see more and more people here in us there are endless endless opportunities uh, with trails everywhere <laughs> and you can get into remote areas easily actually there are um with four-wheel drive you know there are like good arrangements here and yet in remote areas i see very very few people in terms of established trails and known peaks well-known peaks i can say uh is as comparable the passion you know of hikers between uh, europe and us but in terms of getting into remote and unknown maybe in your europe uh, the percentage i would consider higher mm -hmm. people often wonder you know why i go and suffer so much <laughs> they ask me is it fun right. how can you relax when you are in a high mountain you know I, of course mountaining is not always fun in in fact suffering is an integral part of mountain life uh, in big mountains there is often unstable weather sudden snowfall <laughs> stormy winds in fact, you know, I can give you an example. In one of my uh, trips in Central Asia, most of my time in the mountains was miserable. <laughs> so <laughs> it was an effort to cook and eat and sleep. There were frequent wind and snowstorms. And add to that, the altitude which weakens you the longer you stay. In my case, the faster I climb, the better it is for me because once you are over 17,000 feet, you start <laughs> becoming weaker and weaker when you stay longer. I mean, I I uh, had to st uh, camp in a snow cave in one of my trips, and there's nothing fun about spending sleepless days at high camp where you hear the roar of avalanches falling from the nearby mountains. There's nothing fun about staying in a snow cave <laughs> for several days awaiting stability of the weather in a hope to reach a summit, uh, which could be the best climb of your life, well, or, or last. <laughs> <laughs> The impact of all of that, when you are in a big mountain where there is the weather really not stable and there are frequent storms, major I, I said in that trip, majority of my time was miserable. But yet, this, overall, these problems do not have an impact, you know, negative impact on my mental status. Because there were very happy moments which ended up having greater significance compared to the majority of problems I experienced. Mm -hmm. The happiness there really is difficult to describe with words. It's, it's, it's like this Pareto principle, you know, <laughs> known as 80-20 rule or the law of the vital few. That is applicable in the mountaineering, I'd say. So, so explain like, the, that rule to us. Yeah, like even 80% of my time, let's say 80% in that case was miserable. The 20% of the joy, happiness I had in these mountains is more significant it gives you far more more satisfaction and happiness and you tend to forget the misery and go back again it's funny because i think a lot of people because you were saying people ask you well do you have fun and i think a lot of people forget that if they look at their own life some of the things that were most valuable to them weren't necessarily fun and they definitely weren't fun the whole time and so i've taken people to do things before like, uh, here's an example of, of a friend of mine who is afraid of heights, and I brought him climbing on a, on a pretty easy climb, but you still had to climb four or 500 feet up, and it was three or four pitches, and he was terrified, and about halfway up, he asked if we could, if we could bail, if we could rappel off <laughs> and quit, and I told him where we were, it would be harder to do that than to just go to the top. And so he was like, okay. And so he kept going. And throughout, I would just check with him and see if he was enjoying himself. And you could tell he kind of was and he kind of wasn't. By the time we got to the top, he said, I don't know if I ever want to do that again. But by the time we had hiked back to the car, he was saying, I can't wait to do that again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he's asked me multiple times since. And I think that's something that people forget is that the times you most value in your life are those times where maybe you were uncomfortable and maybe you were miserable because that feeling of accomplishment or like you were saying, those moments of joy, like I, I know so many times going backpacking and things where you're miserable and you're just killing yourself all day long and then you sit down and you eat food that's not even good, <laughs> but it tastes better 
than any food you ever eat any other time because you worked so hard just to eat this <laughs> terrible food. That's right. <laughs> and as a mountaineer, you should probably know those things better than anyone because <laughs> there's a there's an old saying, I forget exactly how it goes. It's something like all sports are games except for like one thing, I forget what it is, and climbing mountains. Because like those are the only ones that are serious. Those are the only ones with real consequences. Yes, I mean, also many people indicate, you know, common people at work, they are well aware that I do very, you know, I like to get into very adventurous stuff and sometimes I'm not able to come back on Monday. <laughs> so they don't hear back from me. They know I am living somewhere stuck in the mountains. And like my boss always says, you know, I start worrying about her by Tuesday, not Monday. <laughs> you know, of course, I mean, I know the consequences. What I'm doing, mountaineering is dangerous. And, and yet, despite several near misses and accidents, alpinists continue to, to climb. And most of them tend to be immune to traumatic traumatic reactions. Some studies already show that they tend to go back. I mean, if everything was under control, then you are not mountaineering anyway. <laughs> so the activity would not be an adventure if you have total control over. You told me about your friend who had, was scared and, right. and thought that was all risky, but to me, a connection with risk makes us feel alive and, and you have to enjoy life to the fullest where you can. Never underestimate the power of the mountains and, and stay in communication with them. I mean, that's one thing. Okay, I enjoy myself. I take sometimes significant risks to achieve what I want to do. But in the same time, I respect the mountains and know the consequence what I'm doing. I do not like it when people talk about conquering a mountain. It sounds like there is a battle right. <laughs> with the mountain. It also sounds a little egotistical when people say that. There too. should be peace and harmony. I, I try to climb hard and high uh, while listening and getting feedback from the mountain all the time because you are part of it when you are in the mountains. It's not how many peaks we climb and how many mountains were conquered. Some talk about knocking a peak. I don't like these terms. It just doesn't go well with my way of life when I'm in the mountains. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're saying because there's kind of this this concept with humans that we kind of turn everything into conflict. Like if you're hiking in the mountains, yeah. you're trying you're you're trying to conquer the mountain, and if you're doing this, you're trying to defeat this or overcome this. You can be struggling in those things, but you're not fighting against the mountain. You're, you're using what exists on the mountain to help you ascend it. So if anything, yeah. you're working with the mountain. Sometimes it won't feel that way because the weather is not cooperating <laughs> with you or, or something. But you're not fighting it. You're not fighting the mountain. If you're fighting anything, you're fighting your own weaknesses. Exactly. <laughs> I think some... Uh, I don't remember the exact thing. You described it quite well. <laughs> Mallory, I think it was Mallory who said what we have conquered is ourselves, I think, not the mountain. He said, either him or somebody else, I can't, I cannot remember that part. Anyway, yeah, it, it's not all about ourselves. In fact, it's the mountain and you and the surrounding conditions. Yeah, we have to be one. <laughs> so you mentioned that you take risks, which probably some people think is crazy. I would guess that all the risks that you take are calculated risk. Um, like, I would imagine you don't haphazardly do things, but you do things that you've probably spent time thinking about and that you are trained to be able to do. Am I right about that? <laughs> well, yes, I try to, but we are humans and we have our weaknesses. <laughs> Sometimes you get so excited and underestimate the difficulty. In my experience, the climb is always harder than it looks. Because you look at it and say, oh, I can do that within so many hours and I'm back in the camp at this time. And it doesn't happen sometimes. Other times you are so close to the summit. It's a major climb. We're talking about, let's say, you know, 6,000 meter peaks. I mean, once I was with my climbing partner in Peru, climbing a peak called Tokerahu. It's a beautiful climb. But during our climb that day, several, several unexpected things happened. Like we, we, right when we passed the normal route, 
in, in two, three minutes, and there was an avalanche behind us, you know, just hitting that trail, for instance. That shocked us. And at crevasses, for instance, while we were climbing, they were like, fine. But by the time we came back, the heat melted. So one of the sections so rapidly, it was already problematic going up, <laughs> but it melted more now. We're not able even to jump that far. So meaning, you know, your climbing partner belays you uh, into the crevasse first, and then from there you're using ice tools to climb back up because the jump is too high. Stuff like that delays you. Or you are so close to the summit, you say, well, you know, my turnaround time is <laughs> like 2 p.m., but I can't do that in half an hour. It's so close. <laughs> and then it's late storm approaches and there were moments like that you know i had some close mom calls <laughs> yeah let's talk about turnaround time and for people who who are less familiar with mountaineering and maybe like you were saying the sun starts to melt the ice and starts to change the topography there are alpine starts right which tend to mean you start when it's still dark a mm -hmm. lot of the times yes. right because you want to be on the top of the mountain by a very specific time because after that the day will get hotter and the mountain will get more dangerous correct yes um because of ice or serac fall you know it happens especially in um, climbs that are narrow gullies and and you know relatively vertical it happened to me in one of the climbs on alpamayo for instance because we were late we were very close to the summit actually but then there was uh ice chunks flying and hitting us and cutting our skin to that degree and we were maybe 200 feet away from the summit at that time we knew the risk was very very big so we bailed there even though it's very tempting to summit but then I mean when you ask me would I calculate the risk reevaluate that's constantly happening on the climbs like that it has to when they tell you the weather forecast, like in Central Asia, Tian Shan, mountain ranges, right? When they talk about weather forecast and they say, okay, today's weather is fine for climbing. It's, it's not predictable, but even when they say it's good, it's, it's a range, uh, this Tian Shan ranges in Central Asia, it's a range where I climb and the weather is infamous for being unstable, unpredictable. On the eastern side of the peaks, there is this desert called Takla Makam. <laughs> it's, it's, it's close by, so the temperature difference can be so huge. The peaks are the most northern 7,000 meter peaks, and possibly the coldest on Earth in this category. So sunstorm, sunstorm from this desert can hit the mountains within very little prior warning and incredibly strong tunnel storms common, even during normal climbing season. So that's why I'm saying mountains are dangerous. <laughs> we have to keep that always in mind. and not predictable and you have to be ready and self-sufficient skilled enough to take decisions and reevaluate constantly while you are on the mountain and that comes back to my point respect the mountain do what it tells you to do while it welcomes you to go there say hello but in the same time it warns you whether it's bad and you already see that storm approaching the mountain top okay time to bail <laughs> yeah so let's talk about some of those um, dangers and you mentioned a few you mentioned crevasses and you've mentioned your turnaround time where you need to turn around before it gets too dangerous and you've mentioned falling rocks and things like that there may be some people listening who don't know what a crevasse is a lot of the routes you're doing are covered in snow and ice correct because once yes, you get to a yes. certain height it's just constantly covered in snow and ice and so if there is a fissure or a hole or something in the rock, the ice may have frozen over that and then may crack open and then there will be a huge drop. Yes, like a crackle, you described it. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes there are snow bridges over it, but these snow bridges tend to be thin and you cross over and then and it you collapses. you fall straight through, right? Yes, and there are, I have been involved in expeditions um, climbing peaks where the area was heavily glaciated and, and uh, you know, lots of crevasses too. Especially in those places, you have to be very, very careful. Often, I end up climbing with partners who are almost double weight as me. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I am leading... So, hopefully, they don't fall. <laughs> if anyone falls in, hopefully, it's you, maybe? <laughs> well, in 
when I was uh, climbing Denali, that's what my climbing partners did at times. They put me in front where we knew there were some several crevasses. And they are like, if she falls, we don't have to set up this uh, the three to one zip pulley system. Right, because we, we, we just pull her. In. Yeah, because if you have to pull out someone of a sizable weight in comparison to you, or someone that's not drastically lighter than you, that's right, you have to put an anchor together, right? And you have to build a haul system because it's not just as easy as pulling the rope and pulling the person out because that's yes. a lot of weight. Oh my God, yes, yes. A lot of weight, especially at that altitude. You already <laughs> feel weak. <laughs> it's not your might... usual performance at that altitude. And your anchor might be built directly into ice, right? Yes, yes. You have to have all the uh, necessary gear to set up without losing time, really. The first thing is self-arrest. You're doing that to hold your climbing partner. That's the very first reaction. Right at that moment, he may pull you. In Russia, when I was with a team, the person in front fell into the crevasse. Her boyfriend at the back was pulled together with her and he pulled me before we even had a chance to do a proper self-arrest to hold her. She pulled us right in the edge of the crevasse her boyfriend was able to stop and i stopped and the person behind me came full speed with his crampon hit my back oh i mean for those that don't know crampons and are here we spiky are. boots <laughs> <laughs> here we are four people on the team and one person managed to pull us that far I, that was an eye-opener for me that was back in year 95. and then you still kept doing it <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were able to rescue the person without... Uh, it wasn't very deep crevasse and there wasn't a major incident, but I think the crevasses are a huge risk in the mountains. It happened to me, um, my trip in Central Asia. It was storming and snowing constantly and you taking off in the night time. At one point, uh, my GPS did not function, lost satellite. Now you don't know your route. It's so easy to fall. So I did fall into a little crevasse, but not too far. So the people with me just were able to just pick me up from my pocket, basically pull me, you know, it wasn't, but it was so critical that, that, that you have a function, functional GPS because it snows so much, you lose the trail. You get whiteout conditions sometimes too, right? Where fog whiteout. rolls in and snow falls and you just can't tell what's around you, right? Yes. <laughs> I have been on those conditions several times. And sometimes they put flags to mark the crevasses on those type of climbs. But then it snows so much, those flags get buried there. If you don't have a planned route already, stored in your GPS. I find it always helpful for me. <laughs> you know, okay, you have your maps always because you don't totally rely on the technology, but I think the GPS is what have saved me because if an area is as a maze of crevasses and you are not on the right route, it is very, very risky. It was another incident happened with my climbing partner again and in, in Peru. We were very, very late coming down because several, several <laughs> things happened and, and, and the, you know, the climb didn't go as climbed. But finally, we, we did the summit. Now we're coming back. We lost the trail. At one point, our GPS is neither his nor mine. did record the track. So it's a satellite failure there, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm thinking, oh, yours doesn't. We have a backup. Mine is fine. And it, it wasn't. So we ended up in an area, uh, crevasses everywhere. We kept uh, the rope left between us very, very long so that when my climbing partner falls, I can easily self-arrest. It gives me more time and less, less impact on the And rope. explain to people what self-arrest is. With your eye socks, you immediately, you know, as soon as you, it could be you, you know, taking a fall on a slope or, or your climbing partner, you immediately use your eye ice, ice socks and dig it into the snow to hold yourself. That's the initial reaction. Right. And so anytime someone falls, whether they be in the front or the back, the first thing you've trained yourself to do is use your eye socks to try to stop or slow down that slide, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. 
So anyone who's ever seen that ice axe and was always like, why do they carry an axe? <laughs> now, now they understand one of the reasons why you have it. What other reasons do you have an ice axe? Because there are a lot of reasons for having an ice axe, right? When I have an ice axe, I don't even take my hiking poles. I use that as a like a hiking pole. <laughs> it's, it's long enough for me on the steep climbs to use it as a and then build anchor. Let's say you are a team of two and three. First thing, okay, you did all your self-arrest and when you know, okay, the, we're holding the fallen climber right now, one of the people immediately starts uh, digging the snow with the ice axe and then placing the ice axe for using as an anchor to start with. If you didn't have uh, snow pickets, ice screws, whatever you needed to use there as what you do. <laughs> so it has very many uses and probably most of the things you bring with you have multiple uses, right? Yes. It's best that you have all the necessary gear, but sometimes you are you don't have enough gear. You have to live with limited and you have to be creative. You have to use what you have there. It's, you have to use whatever you have taken with you to its maximum uh, use. Yeah. If you had to break down your backpack on just your average mountaineering trip, what are the main things you have with you besides food and water at all times? The 10 essentials. It's important that you have the 10 essentials, your knife and map, compass. Nowadays, of course, GPS. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People say it's always too good to have a map and compass as a backup. I am maybe not so good with that because I usually rely on my GPS. <laughs> I take enough batteries, your headlight, obviously. And always spare batteries. That is really important. I have seen people, their headlights not functioning or they don't have spare batteries. The climb takes longer than it is. It's, it, it makes it difficult and, and the progress is much slower when you have to accommodate a person who doesn't have headlights. <laughs> I've started carrying two headlamps almost at all times, no matter what I'm doing, because I've been in instances where one malfunctions yes, or the batteries die and I realize I didn't have extra batteries with me that day or something. But the worst is when it malfunctions. I've been in situations where it just starts blinking and it just doesn't work properly anymore and it's and it's useless. And not having idea. light in certain situations can be pretty bad. Yes, <laughs> but very good idea to have two headlights because again, one may not function, it's not just a battery. <laughs> also, sometimes other people forget theirs. And then you can say, well, I guess I'll let you borrow this one. Yes, yes, <laughs> taking the right yeah, you know, okay. There were several things happened in my trips internationally that I didn't know before and I learned every time I go there, wow, you know. Like, uh, you know, in Mount Denali here, when you fly there, you, you white gas is flown up separately by the Kahiltna base camp when you do Denali. The climber going there purchases the fuel from the air service in Talkitna and then acquire it in the base camp because it's dangerous to fly with it. Right, and that's something people might not know because I've run into this backpacking, even just those little canister stoves, you aren't supposed to be bringing those on the airline. So if people listening are going somewhere where they need to take a flight, you need to buy that stuff when you get to your location. You can't bring fuel and canisters and things like that on the airplane with you. Yes, yes. Of course, you know, for an exp expedition of such significance, we were relatively well prepared with all the necessary gear, including liquid fuel stove, you know, this MSR multi-fuel stoves. Okay, I did Denali in 2008 and I know, okay, the same thing must be done in other countries, yeah. So, but I wanted a confirmation. So before getting to base camp, I got a confirmation from an outfitter because there was a company that provided logistics support uh, that we could purchase fuel in a base camp, they told us. We're thinking it's, it's the same. However, when we arrived in that basin, we found out that instead of white gas, they only had other forms of fuel like, you know, propane or butane canisters were available. We all were very disappointed to hear that because they did not have white gas, which is the best choice for extremely cold conditions and high altitude camps. So we started checking with other outfitters in base camp and could only find kerosene from one of the <laughs> outfitters there. But, you know, never underestimate when the, the, the use of that, because when you don't know, okay, some of them had just propane and butane canisters. They are very, very easy, but you are not sure whether they would be working in cold conditions, right? Because right? they can freeze up, right? And the, mm -hmm. the gas 
right? It gets more pressurized and then doesn't function properly. Is yeah, that what it is? Yeah, yeah. And, and so we did choose, okay, we said we buy kerosene and we will use kerosene or other choice. And using kerosene for the first time, I found out that it was harder to ignite than uh, white gas. Also, I found out most of the materials in high camp already use propane butane canisters without hardly any problem. <laughs> to my surprise, <laughs> right? That we were so worried. Uh-huh. And now we see, oh, okay, they're heating in their pocket and, and a tent and, and still able to use it. So I thought, okay, I learned from there. This is the same country. This is the Pamirs and Tian Shan range in Central Asia. Learning from my accident during this, this was the peak Lenin expedition. This is one of the 7,000 meter peaks. And knowing that now I'm moving to another range, which is much, much colder. I thought, okay, kerosene worked there. It will work here. So I still wanted to use kerosene. However, in the city of Karakol, where you purchase it, I found out only petrol, you know, the gasoline was available. as a liquid fuel from the driver. So he opened his engine cup and within a hose transferred about a gallon fuel into my bottles. <laughs> there were no restrictions to fly with a helicopter either. So, <laughs> and, and dealing with gasoline was not, not, not easy. It ignites easily as it is highly flammable, right. you know it. <laughs> it However, <laughs> and, and twice I had close call with the flame getting out of control. Also, it produced more smoke and fumes. It's very, very critical, you know, that you are in a high camp and if you lose your tent, you <laughs> climb is over. And so luckily though, two very nice Armenian mountaineers who I met in base camp before gave their uh, additional propane canisters to me as a backup. They had to bail their Pobeda climb as one of them got his leg injured and so they gave that to me. I was so thankful, lucky to have that. As I said, dealing with gasoline is never easy, no matter how careful you are, how little you put that into the stove to start to ignite, it just, it flames really high. Right. So even little things can become huge things when you have to rely on all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Right gear is definitely one of the key items to your successful climb. So you said that you started mountaineering in 95, right? Uh, like that's yes. the first time you really yes. <laughs> tried. So that means it's been 21 years you've been hiking up mountains and putting yourself in these quote-unquote miserable conditions. <laughs> so you've mentioned places in Central America, South America, Europe, Asia. Where haven't you gone to climb mountains? Are there any continents you haven't gotten to? Any places you're really wanting to get to that you haven't gotten to yet? Oh my God, there are so many, many places I want to go to. Um, the traveling I have done is nothing. <laughs> so I have a feeling there are people listening right now that feel very differently. <laughs> I, I really like traveling. I like to get go into unknown remote big mountains and there are out there so many mountains, so many great mountain ranges I would like to spend. <laughs> all my time <laughs> if I didn't work. I am very ambitious. For instance, I would really, really love to climb K2. <laughs> but I know my skills are not good enough to handle that mountain. And yet, if I had the opportunity... <laughs> you would go anyway? I would make every effort to train and, you know, gain additional skills where I can. You cannot gain those skills overnight, of course, you know. Uh, maybe I'm a dreamer just. <laughs> but yeah, um, Himalayas are maybe the most beautiful mountains. You know, I, I, as I said before, you know, I feel at home in all the mountains. I feel like I'm home. And for you, that's kind of true because you grew up in the mountains. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and traveling in Cordillera Blanca range in Peru were very beautiful. Uh, some mountain ranges in Venezuela, um, Argentina, you know. It was all fascinating and it's all magical there. Maybe the most impressive, of course, the highest mountains, right? Himalayas. Himalayas are unbelievable. Together with the people and the culture there, it it it, form, it makes it more difficult even. So you climb locally. I know you climb things out here in California and in other areas that are you can access in a reasonable drive. But you also travel internationally a lot, obviously. So when you do go out to do some peak or multiple peaks in a foreign country, 
how long do you usually visit for? Because you have to rely on weather conditions, right? So sometimes you just have to wait. So you can't just show up for five days oh. necessarily and do what you want to do, right? There is the training and acclimatization. For big mountains, when you prepare for that, you have to be adequately trained and acclimatized. Otherwise, you're going to suffer a lot. <laughs> Even if you succeeded, you know, summited. There were times I was on a summit, but I was totally feeling sick. That's not fun. <laughs> Depending on your really body, you should start a training few months prior to the expedition. You ask me about the time availability, and then there is the weather, and there is this climbing season that could be very short window in some areas, like in Tian Shan. You know, it's just July and August. But even then, it's not predictable weather. <laughs> for me, in order to stay in a reasonable shape, I usually hike uphill with a pack for a few hours at a time. Um, hiking or climbing in snow with a relatively heavy pack would be ideal to prepare for uh, such expedition. Snow definitely adds difficulty, you know, and you have the heavy boots on your feet, the crampons or snowshoes, whatever, skis, you know, that prepares you, trains you very, very well for big mountains. While climbing Amadablam, for instance, my arms were getting tired as the majority of the route requires the use of as ascenders. So I wish that I would have had more upper body strength. You know, my mountaineers friend recommend pull-ups, but anyway, so I wasn't good because it's really, uh, I never expected that I will be so exhausted using ascenders. Um, it's thousands of meters, you know, there is fixed ropes on the route. You have to allocate enough time to acclimatize your body properly, of course, you know. Uh, I felt that I was, during that climb, I was not sufficiently acclimatized, for instance, that was another thing. Climbing partners, on the other hand, were, one of them was a Sherpa. You can imagine how fit he is. And the other partner had already 10 days in the Alps prior there. But I did not prepare well for that, uh, as I was very, very busy with work. <laughs> so I, and I could <laughs> feel it for sure. <laughs> so on those climbs where, where there are fixed ropes. So people understand fixed ropes means that another group or party has gone ahead of you. And they've built anchors and attached ropes of varying lengths that you come up to and you attach ascenders to them so that you can climb the rope itself instead of climbing up the rock or the snow or the ice. Yes, right. you, you described very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in many routes on bigger mountains, you know, these fixed ropes, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it goes, <laughs> they are being fixed on the entire route, almost a technical part, of course, you know. Um, like Amadablam, for instance, there are fixed ropes along the exposed ridge on Amadablam. On many rock sections, there was a mess of, you know, you have to inspect that though, you know. You cannot just trust and go say, oh, okay, it's fixed up here, life is easy. No, I mean. Right, because something could have happened to change the conditions oh my God. of that I mean, anchor. Exactly. I mean, there was a mess of ropes with many fixed uh, for a few meters and it's not always obvious which one is the rope because there were old ropes still in, in, in place. Some ropes were burned out to the core and some were not rated. There were accidents when I was there. One accident killing a seven summitia, for instance, occurred during rappelling due to a rope damage. I heard that the climbing sheriff has fixed the route with new ropes every year, but ropes sometimes still fail because of the harsh environmental conditions and extensive use. These popular routes, you know, you see so many climbers there and there are bottlenecks everywhere. <laughs> Do you climb a lot of routes that have fixed ropes or is that a kind of a rare thing for you? Well, the fixed routes for me, three times on um, in Alaska, on Denali, and then Central Asia, Kantangri, we've had a fixed group, and then Amadabla. And other routes, no fixed routes there you climb using your own rope <laughs> how, do, how do you feel about using fixed ropes do you like it or would you have preferred to climb those yourself or were the conditions just so rough that you don't think you would have been able to climb it at all without fixed ropes yes i mean the conditions are so rough and it's so cold for you <laughs> to lead place protection and put anchors <laughs> I mean, there are moments, I mean, I wanted to take a picture, I took off my mittens and then my hand ready to freeze. Right. So I am so grateful those people, you know, 
uh, Sherpas and leads and lead climbers go there and fix those ropes uh, for other climbers to use it. <laughs> it makes their life so easy. It's, it's extremely difficult. You, know, you have to be extremely skilled, talented and fit person to do that. So I appreciate that very much <laughs> that's in place. So of all the places you've been to and all the mountains you've climbed, is there any one or any specific routes that just stick out in your mind because of either how great the experience was or how terrible the experience was? <laughs> is there one that just when people ask you about mountaineering, you always immediately think of that one first and always remember that one? Maybe something that just changed your entire <laughs> view of how you do this. Well... Yes, there is one I never forget. <laughs> <laughs> is it for good reasons or bad or both? <laughs> Actually, um, I would say more of a bad reason. <laughs> it was uh, uh, on my solo climb uh, on Mount Kantengri uh, in Central Asia. There is an area, you know, when you move between Camp 1 and Camp 2, there is a very dangerous uh, area that you have to pass. When I was in Camp 1, I started at 2.30 a.m. so that before the heat comes and, and, and the syrup melts, that I am able to reach Camp 2. So I started 2.30 before the sun starts to soften the snow on peak. Mm -hmm. uh, one peak that called um, Chapayev. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, there is a risk of an ice collapse on the slope of this peak. So passing the dangerous area should be quick and early in the morning. Soon after I started, I understood that my load was too heavy and I would slow me down. And at the same time, I had no motivation to make two trips carrying my gear, you know, passing through the dangerous area known for avalanche and ice falls twice. So that is the dilemma, yeah? When you are solo, your load is really, really heavy. And you want to do two trips. You want to catch some gear, come back. But because it's dangerous area, that was the dilemma. I thought, okay, I put all everything together and I just tried to carry everything at once. But on my way, I met a porter who was on his way to bring some of his client's load from Camp 2. So he accepted to carry some of my gear and I didn't have cash. They only accept cash. I was able to give him three kilos. That's good enough. <laughs> the lower slopes were gentle climb, but there are many big crevasses. And these are usually marked with pink ones, making navigation easier, but there is snow too much and they were covered. Miss Porta just went so fast and left me. <laughs> and uh, there was a crevasse. And you have to worry, you said you're soloing, right? So you really have to worry about those crevasses because if you fall in them, you're not tied into anyone who can help you get out. Yeah, no rope. <laughs> I mean, there are not many crevasses on the direct route, if you know, but in the dark, really is hard for me to know. I wanted the day before in the daytime hike and track it with my GPS so that next day, but I didn't have the time. I arrived with helicopter to base camp. I made two trips to carry my stuff to camp one. And the next day, at 2.30, I'm taking off to Camp 2. So in the dark, and the porter just went so fast. There's no way I could keep up with him. He was very, very fit. So in the dark, it was really hard for me to just guess and kind of what direction, you know, based on the information and description beta you read before. It's, it's hard during night time. So there was a crevasse and my load was so heavy. And I thought, and it's a little bit uphill. I thought if I jump <laughs> with that load, I, I may lose my balance. Okay, what am I going to do? I will carefully take, I took off my backpack and carefully <laughs> threw that to the <laughs> opposite side first. <laughs> and then I jumped and I did that and the pack. Really, it was very close call, and it rolled and came to the edge of the crevasse. In fact, went to the second ledge, stood there. So that was a very scary moment. Yeah, that would be terrifying because everything you need to survive <laughs> is in that pack, and if it fell down the crevasse, you'd be in a really bad place. It was really, really scary. Then I continue, and now it starts snowing, and the winds pick up. <laughs> so I continued and then in a very, very windy condition, very cold condition. But I thought I was 
a very difficult day for me, really. Do you do much soloing, or did you decide after that that maybe you shouldn't <laughs> do anymore? That is a good question. This soloing actually was not planned. I did not plan to solo that route. You know, the team that I put together for the climb, I did not work together. You know, they're one of the biggest factors that contribute to a successful climb is team dynamics in, in my experience. It's, it's key to having su successful climb, definitely. Teams that have great dynamics will work well together and get the best of individual team members. Bad team dynamic cause conflict and encourage negative attitude preventing the team from achieving its goal. One of the members and the team, one got sick, it doesn't help, so had to leave before. Other team member, just our schedule, our plans and our decision about certain things conflicted and I have dealt in the past you know with both good and bad dynamics within the team but and, and this is the trip where the team dynamics within the group did not work well and therefore I ended up doing a solo ascent on a technical mountain so <laughs> you know in a dangerous mountain like that where the team need to be roped together I'd rather do it with a climbing partner, ideally actually right, three. Of course. <laughs> I, I, I ideally three. When you end up solo, especially when you did not plan it, one of the disadvantages of climbing solo is that not being able to share the load for common gear, like including tent, stove, pots and food for cooking. You are responsible for the food, water, setting up and breaking down the camp, as well as the weight and association space necessary to carry your gear. You do not have a climbing partner always to help you with emergency assistance if necessary. They knew it in a base camp, this one of the uh, outfitters there, they knew um, I am solo. So I arrived there with helicopter and they say, okay, what what team are you? And I say, okay. I am, I am team ISIL. <laughs> team ISIL music, <laughs> yeah. And I am solo. And they said, okay, we have seen some solo climbers, but not a woman. Is that really what they told you? Yeah, they said, in this mountain, we never seen a solo woman climber. And you said, well, now you will. <laughs> Maybe there were, they didn't know, I cannot imagine. <laughs> because there are out there many tough women, really. But maybe they didn't know. I, I don't know. But And they told me it's a very dangerous mountain and they were not happy with me going solo. If you insist, they said, they gave me a big radio, really good functional radio. Every day, call us in the morning at 8 and tell us where you are and what is your plan for the next day. And I did that. <laughs> I, I, they were very, very nice to provide that for free. I rented a tent from them, though. <laughs> I rented a tent that was a three-man tent. <laughs> they didn't have a smaller one. <laughs> so you had a lot of luxurious room to stretch out while you were sleeping then. You know, after my climbing partner left because he was sick and the tent was his and he said he would do some easy trekking stuff, so he needed his own tent. It was an expedition tent. So I was left with no tent, so I rented this expedition tent from basically from them for 100 euro. <laughs> it was a, yeah, this three-man tent uh, made by Red Fox, actually, uh, which is the biggest outdoor manufacturer and uh, for technical mountaineering equipment in Russia. <laughs> so it was luxurious, spacious, but of course heavier, you know. Right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I left out in Camp 2, uh, on the summit day, I thought, okay, well, I lived out here. I had no motivation because it snowed a lot, and now I am dealing with breaking the trail. No climber was there other than me in that camp that day. And next day, two people arrived. They were not willing to work with me, break the trail. I started, this was very, very exhausting until a Russian climber. A guide came and he did the majority of the <laughs> breaking that way. He was so fit. I was so happy. <laughs> so then, because nobody was there, I knew there were some snow caves already there. I don't have to dig a snow cave. So I went and stayed for two days in one of these snow caves. Uh, <laughs> there were some miserable times there too because <laughs> it's just so windy and the wind brings the snow and closes the entry and and here you are it we have constantly to stay awake to throw away the snow because you're not getting air otherwise it's dangerous 
Yeah, you could be buried alive, right? If you, but, if you didn't. But pay yeah, attention. and I left my tent down below, and when I came back, oh, some people just helped themselves, slept there. You know, <laughs> I, I could see the users. <laughs> so, did you summit on that route that you did solo? Nobody summited that day. <laughs> In country, I I uh, stayed two days there, and then the day they reported weather forecast was like two days good weather, and all the mountaineers who were there waiting for days and days for good weather rushed up to Rautner. So we all trying and it, it snowed a lot that night and therefore I had some concerns. I made a summit attempt uh, on day 10 in my on my climb and around 6,400 meters due to horrendous winds and approaching storm I bailed and all the climbers bailed there. Actually, you know, the route, which is the West Ridge, is always subject to dangerous north winds that are sometimes so violent it can make you lose your balance too <laughs> while you are on that. Anyway, that day, every single climber on the ridge bailed. There were too many climbers along the ridge and that created a bottleneck uh, when we wanted to repel. Now we used fixed rope to climb. Now uh, the weather is bad, everybody is bailing. And now everybody has to repel and I ended up waiting so long time. It tells you, you know, how bad the bottleneck at Everest must be. Mm-hmm. When I was already losing my patience, there waiting is cold and some people are slower and all that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any interest in, in Everest or does it seem too much of a hassle for you? Yeah, I don't have much interest in Everest. Of course, if uh, I was sponsored and the money is paid, I never would say no. <laughs> I still would go. But if I had the opportunity to choose between Everest and K2 or Lotse, I would rather do Lotse or K2, for instance. To me, these are far more interesting, far more beautiful. I, I, I did not summit Kantengri. It's, it's a very, very beautiful mountain. In fact, it's known one of. The, I mean, this is known to be one of the most beautiful mountain, uh, uh, similar to Alpamayo and Amadamba. These three always climbers will talk about them being their dream mountains so I would like to go there sometimes the descent was more problematic than the climb I thought the climb I had miserable times but descending it was not easy either because that's supposed to be the most dangerous time too that's when the most accidents happen right is during the descent yes my goal was to quickly descend come to the snow cave pick up my stuff go to camp two and then break the camp and then to base camp. All that in same day. But because of the bottleneck there, and I waited so long, I already lost some time. So I came to the cave, picked up my stuff, and and, and there was high, high winds anyway, no point staying there. I came to camp two. It was already late and stayed there. And I met there some Aus- Austrian climbers. And they were asking me how I was going down. And I said, well, climbing partner you know and they offered themselves I mean it was really it was very very nice of them so I arrived the next day back to base camp exhausted and uh, of course a little disappointed <laughs> you know when you don't summit you have so much effort you get a little bit disappointed but soon happy when I met a group of Polish climbers who offered me some delicious snacks and vodka. <laughs> Initially when I was approaching base camp uh, I, I told them hello First, I said hello, and one of them responded. He said, "Oh, are you the crazy solo climber?" <laughs> I <laughs> recognize about you. Yeah, he said, "I recognize your voice as we were listening to your daily plans reports with this base camp crew through the radios <laughs> because I was always reporting." Right. So that was funny. <laughs> we were still happy, and yeah. Do you have any climbs scheduled for the immediate future? Do you have any immediate plans? Or have you not figured out what you're doing yet? <laughs> there are several mountains I'd like to go back. I think definitely Central Asia, Peak Pobeda is one of them I am interested. And then I'd like to go back to Himalayas, do some more climbing there. Uh, it must It's not necessarily one of the seven summits. <laughs> I am not after the seven summits, really. I am after beautiful mountains and 
semi-technical that offer a little challenge. And so a lot of different types of people listen to this show that have different interests. And so there may be people listening who have never tried mountaineering, but are curious about it and are thinking about getting into it. Is there anything you would want to tell people if they were interested in getting into mountaineering? First of all, uh, I say uh, mountaineering is, for me, is more mental than physical. <laughs> so mental toughness is a key to having a successful climb. Uh, you have to be mentally prepared and you have to manage your emotions and be patient. That's, for me, far more important. Because if, if you're given mentally, you are done physically. I really believe in that. Train, 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 you know. At high altitude, the body actually begins to deteriorate uh, regardless of your activity. So a dedicated training program is your best preparation. And for me, I mean, that's well-known fact. Acclimatization best method is where you climb high and sleep low, low to encourage the production of red cells. Adequate gear for climbing. And if you are climbing big mountains, um, rescue insurance, of, like for expeditions, if you, you are involved in expedition, it's highly recommended to purchase an insurance plan, including medical rescue and evacuation. And American Alpine Club offers that. You know, there are fatalities and, and serious injuries in the mountains. I always see happens. So it's good to be prepared. So if anyone's listening to this and they want to see some of the mountains that you've climbed, is there a place online where people can go and read trip reports or look at photos? Or do you keep all of that secret? <laughs> Actually, I only have stuff in Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I have pictures and some trip reports, not as good as some people. Well, one thing I'll definitely have you do is send me some photos and other things, and I'll post those on on our website and people can go there and take a look at those photos there and then maybe they'll decide that they want to try mountaineering or maybe they'll think it looks too scary one thing i forgot about your question when you said what are the recommendations i want to add to that again oh yeah go ahead yeah the team dynamics you know for me in most of my existing team members had a positive attitude making the mountaineering experience more enjoyable and successful you know as as a team we were flexible, evaluated our conditions daily, and adjusted the itinerary as needed. Um, you know, uh, you, you need to associate yourself, select your team members, so that you trust each other, value individual experience, and, and consider all perspectives before making a decision. This is very important. One of the key <laughs> to having a successful climb is the team members that you have with you. Uh, for me, it's important to surround myself uh, with positive people and like minds and um, never lose your sense of humor <laughs> and in the end believe in yourself <laughs> no I 100% I agree with you about the team if a team doesn't work together nothing is gonna work right and I also agree with you about the sense of humor because if you're in a bad situation and you can laugh <laughs> you can still come through having enjoyed yourself and push through the harder parts because you can laugh at them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming out here and meeting me this morning and recording this. My pleasure. Thanks to the futuristic age we live in of constant connectivity, I found out yesterday on Facebook that Isil is suffering from a knee injury and in her own words will be stuck on the flatlands for a number of weeks. So I wish her a speedy recovery because I too occasionally get grounded because of injuries and it is a trying experience. And now to clarify a few things that came up during our discussion. I mentioned a quote that I couldn't quite remember, so I looked it up, and it comes from Ernest Hemingway. He said, There are only three sports, bullfighting, motor racing, and mountaineering. All the rest are merely games. And I also did a little bit of research to find out what Mallory quote Isol may have been trying to recall, and I think it was this one, which is part of a much larger passage, but I think this is the part she was referring to, which is... We are not exultant, but delighted, joyful, 
soberly astonished. Have we vanquished an enemy? None but ourselves. So if that's not the right quote, Isil, let me know. But I think that's the one you're probably talking about. And a quick correction. When we were talking about gas-powered stoves, I said something about the air pressure making them more pressurized and less functional. But in actuality, gas gets less pressurized in the cold, and that's why it doesn't function. But either way, same result. You've got a stove that does you no good. Now is the time. Head over to the website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode, 36, Isil Gezik. There you will find several really cool photos of her in the mountains and in quite beautiful places. I definitely recommend checking out those photos. And you will also find a link to the American Alpine Club, which if you are a mountaineer or a climber, you may find worthwhile to join. And if you would like to reach us here at the show, if you would like to congratulate us for a year of podcasting, reprimand us for not remembering Ernest Hemingway quotes, or communicate with us for some other reason, you can do that by sending an email to go at butcherbirdstudios.com or, as always, you can give us a call, 818-925-0106. That is our Google voicemail, and you can leave us a three-minute message. And I already mentioned at the beginning of the show about subscribing, rating, and reviewing, so I won't pester you with that again now. But I would like to mention one other thing. If you are a frequent listener of the show, you've perhaps heard Erica come onto the show before and give updates for various guests. She and I will be traveling across the U.S. throughout October and November recording a video series and recording various podcast episodes with people along the way. I'll give all the particular information about how you can see that series, how you can check it out online in a future episode. If you'd like to recommend any places for us to visit, people for us to speak with, or any other sort of advice or thoughts you have for us on the road trip, go ahead and send us an email. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. And let us know what you have to say about that. Next time on the show, Alan Gigax, mailman, writer, runner of the Vegas Hikers Meetup, a large hiking meetup group in the Vegas area open to people of all experience levels. Come back September 16th and listen to him recount his very first disastrous backpacking trip. See you then. <laughs>